Good morning. We're in Luke 13. In Luke 13, the context of, uh, uh, in verse 30, 31, I should say, it says, just at that time, some Pharisees approached him. What time? Um, the time that he's talking about is, is everything that's happened up to this point, at least a good bit of it. Um, you've got uh, Jesus having just talked about in the previous context that not many will enter the kingdom of heaven. That flies in the face of what people have always um, maybe believed or hoped, that the majority of people on the planet will be saved. Well, it's just not, it's not so. The kingdom of heaven and being saved are, are equivalent here. Um, and, and Jesus is saying only a few, only a few will actually enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this has upset many of the Jews uh, at this time because all Jews believe they were going to heaven. Uh, they believe there might be a handful, just a very small handful of people that are of the Gentile persuasion. By the way, there's only Jews or Gentiles. If you're not Jew, you're Gentile. Uh, maybe a few of them would be in heaven. Jesus has just said not only are there a few, few entering, but he's looking out at, at Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law and telling them, that includes you that won't be there. You think that made him mad? Absolutely it did, and we'll see that. Um, we've got, in previous context, you've got Jesus not only saying a few will enter, he's uh, been teaching on the Sabbath day. That upset a bunch of people. Uh, he's uh, called them hypocrites back in chapter 13, verse uh, 15. Way back to chapter 11, he called them all scri- all the scribes and Pharisees a bunch of hypocrites. Do people like that? Do you like that? There are people that won't come back to this church because I dared to call everyone sinners. And I've had people that, that there were friends, they came with friends, and one, one family, one of our, my good friends, they since left because they moved. He said, Lance, oh, this family, was ne- they'll never come back and hear you. Why? Because you called them sinners. Do they not know they're sinners? I guess not. Um, you know, the reason I say that is because, A, it's true. <laughs> Why am I the only one laughing? A, it's true. B, it's the elephant in the room that we don't talk about because the world talks about how good everybody is and people think they're good. Oh, you're a good person. I'm a good enough person. No, you're not. That's our problem. And C, God became flesh to save sinful people. If you're not among the sinful and you're pretty good, he must not have died for you. And I need as a preacher, I need as a pastor to tell and remind that you are a sinner. They didn't like it in Jesus' day any more than people like it today. It upsets people. It, it causes them to be angry. I don't want to hear that I'm a sinner. Jesus has told them in chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, if you want to be my followers, take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourselves. Don't give yourselves everything you want. Deny yourselves. That upsets people. He told people in chapter 13 to humble yourselves and repent. Talks about people dying in a horrible way, and he says, look, if you don't repent of your sins, you're going to die the same way. That's, a bad, that's bad news. What does it take to be saved from your sins? Repenting, turning around, turning from the way you're living and live to the glory of God. Do people want to be told that? Typically not. Doesn't build large megachurches. Doesn't make a lot of money. Doesn't sell many books. And yet it is what Jesus has told us to teach. It's what he taught. He even told them that for those who will not be there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
He doesn't tell the Jews, look, just because you won't go to the kingdom of God, we've got a little hollowed out little middle place for you where it's going to be okay. No, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, anger, fury, rage over where you're going to end up because you think that when you die, you're going to be in heaven because you think you're a good person. And when you find out that you're not there and that the door to heaven is not open to you, you will weep and gnash your teeth at Jesus who will not let you into the narrow door. Because once you die, that door is closed and there's no getting in. That's why the appeal is to go out while people are living. This is at that time. This is what Jesus had been teaching. As I said, he's taught these six woes back in chapter 11. Six woes. Woe to you, scribes. Actually, he says, woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you and all your man-made ideals, all of your legalisms. Woe to you. You're trying to bring people into heaven, but you're not getting there either. And the scribes say, excuse us, Jesus, when you say these things, you offend us too. (laughs) Funny statement in the Bible. I wonder what the look on Jesus' face was. I am so sorry. I didn't mean to offend. Jesus never apologizes for offending people. And neither should we when we offend them with the gospel. There's too many mamby-pamby people going around saying something and having to apologize later. Certainly there are things we say we wish we hadn't have. And we should apologize for it. But not the gospel. Not the truth. Ever. Well, I liked what you said, but I didn't like the way you said it. I'm sorry you didn't like the way I said it. But I can't apologize for the way we say something. Sometimes the passion is just there. It's ruminating. It's boiling over. You say something that seems angry, but it's actually out of love and passion. Move out of the middle of the road. There's a truck that's going to run over you and kill you. Well, you didn't have to say it so loud and hurt my feelings. Well, that's the only way I thought you might hear. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm not sorry. Jesus is just healed on the Sabbath. If you would, hold your place here in Luke and just go over to the gospel to the left in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we see in all the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus has been upsetting the religious leaders, the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, priests. They don't like him. And Jesus, as he does on many occasions throughout the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he heals people on the Sabbath. And in in Mark's gospel, he's he's healing people at the end of chapter 2. And then on chapter 3, he again entered the synagogue, and this is on the Sabbath. Uh, A man comes in with a withered hand. And, And if you knew this man with a withered hand, you might think, Lord, maybe you could save him. Maybe you would heal this man with a withered hand. The rest of us have two full arms and hands and we can work. And he can't. Uh, your heart might go out to such a one. Would you heal such a man, Lord? Maybe no one was praying for him. Maybe everyone was. Well, Jesus just healed him. He says at, at the end of verse 5, he said, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And you'd think everybody's going to jump up and down, but it says the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. That's important here. Against him as to how they might destroy him. As to how they might murder him. This is what doing good has gotten Jesus. I was thinking that everything Jesus did, it seemed to bring out the worst in most people. Which I find very confusing. Here is God who has become flesh. God left heaven and took on human flesh, became a man to live among his people, to show them the love of God, 
to heal their diseases, to teach them the truth. Oh, you've been taught this. Let me tell you that this is wrong, and let me show you the right way, the truth. Teaches them the truth, heals the sick, makes the blind see, raises the dead. You would think that everyone loves Jesus. It's just the opposite. They hate him. God doing what God did brought out the worst in people. I found that as a pastor, as an evangelist. Just to preach the gospel sometimes brings out the most insane words from the people you're talking to. That insulting, horrible, even filthy language, what people will say about you. You figure they killed Jesus and they hated him. Certainly they're going to do that to us. But it's still rattling, isn't it, if you've ever experienced it? I just gave you the truth. I, I have no, no objective here other than that I tell you the truth. I'm not asking you for money or a gift, just giving you the truth. And you hate me. You'll never come back to the church. You'll never talk to me again, whatever it might be. This is what they were doing to Jesus. All he was doing was loving them. And sometimes we love with giving the truth, speaking the truth. So when we see in in chapter 13 in our passage today, just at that time, it's at that time, Pharisees approached him saying to him, the Pharisees we know were against him, but we do know, however, we see in Luke chapter 23 and in John's gospel that there are a group of Pharisees that are secret followers of Jesus. They do love Jesus, but they're afraid to say it out loud. But there are some Pharisees, we're not sure who they are, probably the Pharisees here that have been insulted. And they're the ones that, remember I read to you in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees are conspiring with the Herodians to kill Jesus. At that time, Pharisees approached, saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Luke doesn't tell us if these are his friends. Pharisees saying, look guys, you need to get out of town. Jesus, leave town. Uh, Herod, you're in his territory. Herod, this is Herod, excuse me, Antipas, who was uh, the king uh, of... uh, Galilee and Perea. Galilee is the upper portion of of Israel. Perea is just across the Jordan. And uh, uh, he has this territory. He is the son of Herod the Great, one of the sons of Herod the Great. He reigned from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. Uh, He was not a powerful king. He was a, uh, his his immorality, I should say. I was going to say his morality, but his immorality rose to the level of his father, uh, who was one of the worst people that ever lived, Herod the Great. Um. Herod, the last time we heard from Herod was, uh, at least from Luke's gospel, was after he had murdered John the Baptist, had John the Baptist arrested. Do you remember why he had John the Baptist arrested? Because John the Baptist told him, hey, you are living with your brother's wife. You can't do that. <laughs> uh, does anyone, do, do rulers who are doing that like that? We see modern rulers, when you speak like this to them, it gets you in trouble. John the Baptist was arrested and Herod, the, Herod Antipas had him beheaded as a result uh, at a party one night um, in this um, daze that he had gotten into by watching his, his live-in girlfriend's daughter dance for him. So the greatest man that Jesus said ever lived was beheaded by Herod Antipas because he was watching a girl dance. You think, that ought not be. What did John the Baptist do to deserve that? I'll tell you what he did to deserve it. He spoke the truth. And when he died, he died. It doesn't matter how he died, when he died, or who killed him. The moment of his death, he was united with his maker, his creator. And for that, we rejoice. And anyone else we know who is in Christ. 
But the last time we heard of Herod was that Herod heard that Jesus was going around the countryside with his disciples preaching the gospel. And he thought, because his conscience was so horrible within him, and he was paranoid, he was a paranoid, crazy man, he thought it was John the Baptist having been raised from the dead. That's the last time we heard from, from Herod Antipas. As you know, his, his dad, Herod the Great, um, had put out the, the decree to kill all the little boys in Bethlehem, in and around Bethlehem, two years of age and under, trying to kill uh, whom he was told was the Christ who had been born in Bethlehem. Kill them all. That way, that person won't grow up and be king and, and uh, jockey with me from my throne. Insanity. The apple didn't fall far from the tree when he had Herod Antipas. And the Pharisees come up and they're saying to Jesus, leave here, Herod wants to kill you. Um, again, we don't know if these are Jesus' friends. It's possible, at least I, I believe that there's enemies, and they, it's Herod's way of saying, get out of town. It wasn't, wouldn't be expedient for Jesus to continue to preach in Galilee. Uh, have that guy, get that guy out of here. Let's scare him. Maybe he'll think I'll kill him like I killed John the Baptist. Just get him out of here. And so the Pharisees say, hey, Herod wants you out. Really what we know is that the Pharisees wanted Jesus for themselves. And they're conspiring with Herod's men, the Herodians. Leave here, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to him in verse 32, I'd love to see the the look on his face or the tone of his voice. Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. This is a colloquialism, an idiom, if you will. It's like saying, I'm going to do what I do today and tomorrow, and I'm going to fulfill what I do. It would be like me saying, I'm going to preach my sermon today. I'm going to get up tomorrow. I'm going to prepare for the next one. I'm going to prepare for it again on Tuesday. I'm going to fulfill my mission my next Sunday when I preach again. It's like you saying, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do the work tomorrow and Monday and Tuesday. I'm going to do it every other day until God takes me. That's what he's saying. But Jesus never speaks with contempt to anyone in the Bible like this, except Herod Antipas. Go tell that fox. In Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15, uh, the writer says, let's get rid of the little foxes from our vineyard. They're destroying our vineyard. Now, it's not talking about their crops outside their, their, in their front yard. He's talking about their lives. And the little foxes represent all the bad things that can happen, all the, the things that we allow to ruin our relationships. Marriage, friendships, whatever it may be. And so we get rid of those things. If you know what those little foxes are, and it's a metaphor for just the things that can destroy you, maybe you drink too much. We're going to get rid of those little foxes. We're going to stop drinking altogether. That only brings pain to our family. Maybe we watch too much TV. Maybe we're, whatever it might be. Maybe we were on our phone too much. I know, I didn't, I didn't want to bring that up, but uh, that, that is possible. Little foxes. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, there's also when Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall that had been burned. He rebuilds it to a certain point, halfway to its, its former point, and his enemies are saying, yeah, if a little fox jumped on that thing, it would fall over. So foxes are not thought of as anything but pests. It's really, it's what Jesus is saying, you go tell that rat. You go tell that dirty varmint. Isn't that interesting to hear Jesus talk like that? Foxes, even today, they're, you notice he didn't say, you go tell that lion. You go tell that wolf. That would have been a compliment. He didn't even call him a snake. Now, if you've got chickens, you've got a little barn, chicken coop, you know all about foxes and coyotes. 
insignificant little wild dogs, predators that prey on defenseless animals. That's what a fox is. Yeah, they're beautiful animals, but Jesus is essentially saying, you go tell that insignificant little peon, I'm going to work today, tomorrow, and I'm going to complete what I'm doing. In other words, he doesn't scare me a bit. Go tell him that. (laughs) Wouldn't expect Jesus to do that. Jesus thinks so little of this man that when Herod Antipas gets his chance to try Jesus in in, uh, Luke 22 or 23, Pontius Pilate realizes, oh, he's a Galilean, then he needs to be tried by Herod. He sends him off to Herod. Jesus doesn't say a word, ignores him. I think it's the height of of insult. Completely ignore him. Jesus shows contempt for this man and disdain like no other. How bad do you have to be for Jesus to say nothing to you? That his life, his character is so bad, it's gone so far off the deep end. And Jesus knows his heart so well as to say nothing to him. At the very least, he talked to Pontius Pilate. What is truth, Jesus? Jesus answers him and says, I I tell you, I am a king. But not to Herod Antipas. This man's immorality, his political aspirations, his way of living, and he sends a threat to Jesus. Jesus just probably shook his head. Go tell that insignificant nothing that I'm doing what I do. Now, in saying this, using this little colloquialism to say today and tomorrow I do what I do, and the third day I reach my goal, you do see a little what's embedded in there perhaps a, a first day, second day death, third day fulfillment in the resurrection. You can't help but to see that embedded within this little idiom. Nevertheless, Jesus says, and by the way, when I reach my goal, that is my fulfillment. Tell Herod, not only am I not afraid of him, He has no part in interfering with my ministry. Do we not see in the Gospels when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that there's a time, Jesus goes everywhere in the right time, and then he says, you know, when when they try to kill him, it says that it wasn't his time, and then he says in the end, it is my time, the time has come, and he gives up his spirit at the right time, It's no coincidence that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, quoted by John the Baptist in John 1, uh, 29, is dying on the cross at the very hour that the Passover lambs were being slain in Jerusalem on Passover. The Lamb of God. Do you think that was just coincidence? The timing is perfect because our Lord is perfect. And he knows, go tell that fox, he has no place and interfering with what I'm doing. Go tell him, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. In other words, I'm going to continue to do what I do, which is casting out demons, uh, freeing people from uh, their sins and that which oppresses them, and I'm going to perform signs. And if this scares that paranoid lunatic, fine, so be it. And the third day I'll reach my goal, I've finished. Nevertheless, he says, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day continue on in other words I'm going to continue on what I'm doing teaching as I go and then he has this most sarcastic statement 
For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, there's no way Herod's going to come kill me while I'm in Galilee. The town of Jerusalem has cornered the market, as it were, in killing the men of God. They have the monopoly on killing the men of God. And Jesus is saying, how could it possibly be that God in the flesh would die anywhere on this planet except there? This holy city. Mind you, God marked out this city as the place where his temple would be built. The place where King David ruled. The first great king of Israel ruled from Jerusalem where the priesthood was. The only place on the planet where people could come to find forgiveness for their sins. To offer a sacrifice. To bring it from point A to point B in Jerusalem to the priest who would make that sacrifice and the blood of that animal would atone the sin of the, of the, the sinner who brought it. And yet this holy city where God's name dwelt is the place where the great prophets of old were killed. Isaiah, it is said, was stuck into a hollow, hollowed out tree, shoved that great prophet into the hollow tree where King Manasseh sawed him in two, cut him in half. Where Zechariah, the great prophet, was stoned to death in the temple. Where Jeremiah spoke of the other prophets of the day dying, preaching the truth. How could it be, Jesus says? I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, for it cannot be that anyone would die, any prophet would die outside of that city. I want you to go back with me over the history of the world where God creates this beautiful and amazing universe and narrows it all down, brings us down to this locality he called the, the Garden of Eden where two people are living, Adam and Eve. He gives them everything. Everything here, it's like saying you can sit in every seat in this auditorium where there are 977 seats, but just one... Just one seat. Don't sit in that seat. You have 976 seats to sit in in this auditorium. But there's 977. Just don't sit in that one. What would you do? Well, which seat is that? Does that seat have a a massager and warmer or something? Does it have a, a coaster in it or something? That's what God is saying. You can have this everything in this garden, but don't eat from this tree. Which tree? And so they ate from the tree. Like we would probably sit in the chair. We're not supposed to sit in. Ushered in this horrible plague of sin that every offspring they ever had was born with this sin. That's you and me. But God's grace is good. He he works with people. He continues to give them grace. By the time we get to Genesis 6, there's a flood because the earth has become so corrupt so violent, so many murders that began with their own offspring, Cain and Abel. The whole earth is flooded and God in his grace preserves Noah and his family and they repopulate the earth. It gets bad again. Abraham is told to go into Canaan where the Canaanites are so wicked they sacrifice their own children in the fires. They sacrifice their own children in fire. God said, annihilate them. You go move into the land, get rid of them, I'm judging that land. They do. 
God delivers them from Egypt, sends them into his land. Miracle after miracle after miracle, they see God working and God continues to show them mercy and grace and they continue to sin. And you wonder why. Moses rises up, Joshua rises up, the judges rise up, and that's the whole sin cycle in the book of Judges. A good judge is there, a good judge dies, people fall into sin. They finally cry out to God, God delivers them with another judge. That judge lives for a while, people are good, judge dies, people get back in their sin, God sends them into oppression, they call out to God, God sends them another judge. All the way down to Samuel. And then King Saul, and then David, and Solomon. And during the time these men were kings, God is sending prophets, telling them to repent, repent, come back to me, come back to your covenants, come back to your God. And they continually rebuff him, ignore him, killing the prophets, ignoring the law of God, splitting, creating their own gods, lowercase g, offering incense to other gods, even going back to the practices of the Canaanites where they themselves offer their children the fires of a God named Moloch. You wonder why? Why? What's happening with these people? Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. God puts them back in their land after he expunges them from the land in 586 BC. Leaves them in Babylon for 70 years. Puts them back there. Gives them prophets again and a great priest and a great preacher named Zerubbabel. And they preach and he preaches the truth. And people begin to get Weary again, and they send some more. The next one on the scene, 500 years later, is a man named John the Baptist who paves the way for Jesus, God in flesh. They kill John. Later, they'll kill Jesus. And so Jesus looks out over this city in verse 34, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Jerusalem here is a metonymy. If you know your figure of speech, metonymy is just substituting Jerusalem for the Jews. Oh, Jewish people, Jewish people. And the, the repetition of it shows this passion. We see it elsewhere. Jesus back in, was it chapter 11, chapter 10, where Jesus looks at Mary and he says, Mary. Actually, he looks at Martha. He says, Martha. How many of you caught that? before I corrected myself. Martha, Martha. She's saying, hey, Jesus, tell my sister to come help me. Of course, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus listening. Martha, Martha. You can see the affection he has for Martha. Later on in chapter 22, uh, Simon Peter. Jesus will approach Simon and say, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. Simon, Simon, the deep affection Jesus had for Simon Peter. Remember when Absalom was killed, David's son? After he was killed, what did he say? Oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. And he repeats it. You can see in this this affection, this love, this compassion. And here Jesus comes in. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, when you come in on the bus from the northern part of Israel and you come in and you see it, It's an amazing experience. It's absolutely astonishing. You will get chills. And you see this city. It's not the same city Jesus saw. It didn't have the dome of the rock in it as the center point. It had the temple, which is far more beautiful. 
Jesus goes in and He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The people, the Jews. The city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you would not have it. Jesus is lamenting, this lament of Jesus. So we see what Jesus is, this love for the people that have rejected him, the love for the people who have killed the prophets who have gone before. I mean, Jesus doesn't hate those who hate him. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God will kill the wicked. God has killed the wicked. God will send the wicked away into eternal damnation for that period of time, that eternity. It will happen. He takes no pleasure in that. He's not a sadist. They will go there as part of his will to the glory of God, but he takes no pleasure in this. Jesus is saying the same thing to Jerusalem. This city that that kills and maims and, and destroys and perverts How often Jesus is saying, I I long to gather you in. Like a hen would would bring bring in her little chicks under her wings where they're safe and protected. But you would have none of it. Again, you see this loving God who became flesh, who is hated for doing nothing but loving. Jesus tells his own brothers in John chapter 7, verse 7, he said, the world doesn't hate you. The world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. Don't expect that if you're going to be a preacher of the word, an evangelist of the good news, of the gospel, that people are going to like you. They are not. I heard one preacher say one time, he said, you know, you expect after all the years I've been preaching the gospel, after all the years I've gone verse by verse in the text, he said, you would expect me to be some kind of a hero among the churches of Jesus Christ in this planet. He said, instead, I am a loathed enemy for preaching the truth. I thought, well, what an amazing thing to say. How true it is. I think of the people that hate me or that have left, and I think, was it because I insulted them? Was it because I, I ripped them off? Was it because I kicked them? Was it because I shot their dog? None of the above. What could people possibly hate me for? They hate you as a preacher, and therefore they hate you as everything else. You told them they were sinners. You told them they were wrong. But I didn't tell them that personally. You told it to them in a sermon. They didn't like it. And now they go around the world telling everybody, don't go to that church and don't listen to him. And they do it to every preacher in the world that preaches the truth. Folks, they did it to Jesus. They continue to do it to Jesus. We don't want to hear that. And yet here's Jesus with his arms open. I wanted to gather your children together, but you would not have it. Behold, which is the word for behold is a way of saying look. That's what we say today. You know, somebody asks you a question. Look. You ever notice that every time somebody asks you a question? Look, or hear, hear this, uh, say behold next time. Behold. <laughs> you want to be biblical? Be, say behold. Well, where do you want to go? Behold. How about gringos? <laughs> I don't want to go there. Let's have my pizza. Behold, Marcos. <laughs> behold, listen up. Your house is left to you Desolate. Desolate's the word that's added. But if it's, you probably have it in, in uh, italics in your Bible. Behold, your house is left to you. Desolate is the word to add, though. 
your house. Notice it doesn't say God's house. Your house. This little city that you have corrupted, Jerusalem, and your temple that you've corrupted, you scribes and Pharisees, behold, you have left it desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. It's no longer worth anything. Less than 40 years later, it would be destroyed in AD 70. From AD 66 to AD 70, the Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that over a million people were killed. And as they surrounded the walls in the city of Jerusalem, the people hold themselves up in the walls. They walk through the streets where once fresh bread was sold, where once fresh fish was given out, where once all the concoctions of, of Jewish um, cuisine were made. They're walking through this, this once vibrant city, and there is no food. The people that were eating were eating the dead. And the dead were thrown over the wall. And they listened to the looters outside take all their clothes and whatever it is they could grab from them. This is what Josephus describes. I know it's horrible to think about. And this happened just less than 40 years later. How often, Jesus, I wanted to gather. You'd have none of it. Now your house is left to you desolate. A prophecy. Not only is it desolate now in Jesus' day, it's going to be ripped from you. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. And here's what Jesus is saying. Even though your city is cursed, and even though it will be destroyed and left desolate, there's still hope for the Jewish people. Some have said, well, what he means is they'll, they'll say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord when he comes into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. And to some extent, they did. They saw him again. But these are the same people that killed him five days later after he came in. No, Jesus is telling them, even though your city and your people will lie desolate, God's covenant with Abraham Back in Genesis chapter 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 22 and then through Isaac and then through Jacob and then through Moses, that covenant repeated over and over. He's saying, God has a covenant that he must fulfill with you. And there will be a day you will see Jesus coming. And on that day he comes, you will say, blessed is he. Blessed is Jesus, that one who comes in the name of Yahweh. Even though you're hopeless and desolate now, there's hope for you in the future. That's what he's telling them. You will be restored. We see it in Romans 11. Paul laments the same way Jesus does in Romans 9, verses 1 to 5. And then tells uh, the Roman church, and then by extension, all of us who have the book of Romans in our Bible. By the way, it's in all Bibles. That when the full number of Gentiles has come to faith... Then all Israel will be saved. God goes back to Israel. Why? Why would he go back to this nation that has such a horrible past of rejecting him? Why would he? Because he loves them so much? No. Because he has a covenant with them to do that. And if there's one thing God doesn't do, is lie. You may reject me now, you may lie desolate. You will not see me again. And of course, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says that they will, they will what when they see him coming? They will weep when they see the one that they pierced. 
as he descends from heaven. You see them in the book of Revelation. There's still time for those left on the earth at that point. For those who have been rejecting Christ, they see him descending. Oh, what a horrible thing that will be. Some will run to the mountains and talk to the mountains, according to Revelation 6, and say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Talking to a mountain, that's how insane people will be. Fall on us, kill us. May we fall under the rocks of this mountain that we not have to see the face of the Holy One of God whom we pierced. What do you do? What do we do with a passage like this? Well, I've given it to you in outline. I won't cover it all. I hope that you look through these. I hope that you go to a shepherding group and talk through these issues. I want you to see, number one, in the observations, uh, with death always in Jesus' sight, I want you to note his bravery and his love. The love that Jesus had. You know, when Jesus transforms us, when he saves us, that love is infused into us. The love of God. How do you know you you have it? You go out and you tell the same truth Jesus did. I am appalled, offended, and also convicted when people say things like, you're not very loving. Just to stand up here and give you this truth is the greatest love I can show you. I just don't do it with a really sweet voice, do I? No one said amen. (laughs) I wish I sounded tender. I do. But this is my way of loving. Here's what it is. Here's what it says. I'm the guy yelling, get out of the middle of the road. Death is coming. Move. Well, that didn't sound loving, but it was. I'm trying to save your life, your soul from death. Better, better to be yelled at by me than to have to face God on judgment day. Don't you think? And if you don't like me for it, that's okay. You don't have to. I, you were born a sinner just like me. You were conceived in sin just like me. You need your sins washed away. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done or how many times you've done it. You need it, I need it, and God has provided it. And it is my privilege and my honor to tell you that it is a man, Jesus, of the town of Nazareth, born to Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Hence, he is truly God and truly man. He is the perfect sacrifice. He's a man, that way he lived our life, he's just like you and me in that regard. And yet he's perfect, so he could provide the perfect satisfaction. He wasn't a lamb that had three legs. He wasn't a lamb that we wanted to get rid of from our flock that had cancer. He's perfect, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the peace treaty. Receive him and all of your sins are washed away. Jesus may say from behind that door, oh, Lance, Lance, how over the course of your life I long to bring you in through this narrow door, but you would have none of it. You lived life on your terms and your ways. You found a bunch of dumb, stupid excuses to not believe because you wanted to live your life. Oh, Lance, I wanted to bring you through here, but you didn't want to come. Add your name to that. No doubt there's some in here whom Jesus will say that to. 
Today we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, often called communion, the Eucharist. Um, We're going to celebrate it in the terms of remembering, as the Bible tells us, doing this, we remember Jesus' death. We're going to I want you to focus on that cross and Jesus' death, how God became flesh to live our lives and die our death. How he was brutally beaten and tortured for you and me. We're going to remember that death with bread, his body, juice, the blood. But we're not just going to remember his death. Jesus told his disciples on the night before he died, I also want you to remember and look forward to This meal that they had that night, and I want you to look forward to the meal we're going to have when I come back. Because Jesus said, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine until I come back in my Father's kingdom. And we're going to have a feast. We read Revelation 19, Jesus comes back and there's what? A feast. Actually, there's two feasts. One is a feast of the birds of carrion eating the bodies of unbelievers. I know terrible thing to think about before you eat lunch and the other feast is us eating with our God and Savior today we remember his death and his future return that's what the Lord's Supper is so I call our deacons and whomever else will be helping with the passing out of these elements so uh, Christina will play Uh, I ask you to be uh, in in prayerful contemplation of what uh, what this means In partaking of the Lord's Supper, there is a certain warning that accompanies it. And I'll read to you what Paul says. He says, A man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Let me just say this. If you are here and you have never made a profession of faith in Jesus... And you would dare to partake of this supper. Don't. It is not for you. Uh, If you cannot or will not uh, profess Christ as Lord and Savior, please don't partake. There's no shame in saying, I can't do this. I promise you there is no power in it. It will get you nothing. There are many I've talked to through the years that believe, well, it can't hurt. It can hurt. It's not for you. It is for those who believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a certain judgment In the first century, Paul says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are dead. He uses the word sleep. People had died for partaking of this meal in an unworthy way. He said, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, if you would judge yourself, judge yourself, judge your own sins, and judge yourself a sinner and receive forgiveness, then the meal is for you. I recognize it's not a meal. It's a remembrance. We partake to remember. He says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. We, in having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, have had all of our sins judged. We've stood before the judge of all mankind already. We will never stand before the judge to be judged of sins. Those sins were judged at the cross. Our penalty has been paid. 
And so we remember his death. There's a little piece of cellophane on the top of your all-in-one. Make sure you grab it's just clear. Pop that off. The wafer. I don't recommend eating the whole thing, but uh, maybe you enjoy it. Jesus said this, and the apostle Paul writes, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. No doubt he would have held up a piece of bread, unleavened bread, which signified bread without sin, his body without sin. This is my body, Jesus says. Partake of it. We do. Right afterward, in verse 25, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, Paul says, In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Not the old covenant of the law, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it, as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So peel that off. Be careful, because sometimes it's glued on real good, and you pull too hard, it gets all over your white dress. Peel that off carefully. And we partake of this red juice uh, in commemoration of the blood Jesus shed. In other words, his death. Paul says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It doesn't mean that we have to eat it or drink it every time we're together to proclaim it. But when we are together, we proclaim it every time we're together. We just don't have to eat or drink to do so. But in this solemn ceremony, we do so, I would say, in a special way. We remember with real food and real drink that Jesus' body was a real body. That he really died. That his blood was really shed. You think, that's just, why? Why? Because he is the perfect lamb of God. His death washes all of our sins clean. Is that not awesome? In God's eyes, we have been justified, declared righteous through faith. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you have displayed a love that we we are awed at. I pray that if we're not awed, we would get awed. That we would sit before you in silence until we become so awed and overwhelmed at what you did for wretched sinners like us. That you saved a wretch like me. May this ceremony, this rite, this ordinance be glorifying to you as we recall your death and as we look forward to that meal at your coming. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. May the Lord God Almighty bless you and keep you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.